Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 328. We are in the first week of the month of Cheshvan. It's actually Zion Cheshvan, the seventh day of Cheshvan, which is a special day, and it has personal relevance to each one of us, which we will begin with, as we customarily do, with the timely dates or Parsha, the Torah chapter. Before we do, let me announce the dedication. This program is dedicated by Beryl Eunuch in honor of Rab Shlema Greenwald. We appreciate your support in making this and many of our other programs possible, especially during the last seven months since the pandemic broke approximately around Purim time when it became official in March. I cannot uh, even describe how many programs we did. Um, it was, didn't even need any scrambling because we're set up with this online camera and studio and system. But more than ever now, people are receptive and vulnerable when uh, our comfort zones are shaken up and our security blankets are stripped from us the conventional routines and patterns, we turn inward. And what better time to then access what Chassidus teaches us, Chassidus applied, the tools, the life skills, the resources we need to deal with any challenge, including the ones that we're facing now that in many ways are unprecedented, both ourselves and our families. So I can tell you as a personal witness that the impact of applying Chassidus is being felt now more than ever because the need for it is more than ever. So this is a good opportunity to just renew our commitment to the teaching and spreading and applying of Chassidus, which of course this program is all about. We have a special website, chassidusapply.com, dedicated to this program and all the offshoots and all its uh, the outgrowths of the different, different elements that have grown out of this program, which began seven years ago. Never imagined that it would continue this long. We're already now 328 episodes, seven years of weekly episodes, applying chassidus. The questions that keep coming in only grow. Just to testify again to the relevance and importance of this. And of course, out of this has grown the archives that we have all at chassidusapply.com. The essay contest, which we're now in the sixth year, we just finished the sixth essay, annual essay contest. We've now added also a creative track. We announced the winners usually before Pesach, but because of the circumstances this year, we announced it before Tishrei. And uh, it's just a thriving and robust platform that has created all types of ripple effects. And I say it humbly and also honored to be part of it. But we're all part of this, because this is the mission we were given, as the Baal Shem Tov heard from Mashiach. When will you come? When will you, Mashiach, come? Baal Shem Tov asked him, and he said, and he responded, Those three words, the dissemination of the Mayanisecha, your wellsprings of Chassidus, Chutzah, to the outward, to the furthest outskirts of this planet, as the Rebbe puts it, that is the direct answer of Mashiach, of how he will come, when he will come. 
So what better way of doing that is by taking chassidus and applying it to our personal lives. We know that chassidus is terosha shal Mashiach. It's a taste, like an appetizer on Erev Shabbos, on Friday of the meal of Shabbos. So it's a taste of what we'll be learning when Mashiach comes. And what will we be learning about our neshama, about our connection to God, about our role in this world, in the full, full glory. So now when we learn chassidus and apply it to our lives, we're actually, this is how we introduce Mashiach into our, into our beings and our psyches and into the world around us. So obviously there are many ways this can be done. Chassidus applied. This program is one primary way. So your participation, your partnership with us by asking questions, by challenging, by commenting, by supporting in every possible way what we do, including financially, is very much part of this effort, which, as I've pointed out, has only grown. And sees, and now, with these latest challenges and these latest needs, is only growing even further. This is a short overview from time to time. It's good to revisit re, uh, our uh, mission and renew uh, our contract as we go into this new year. So as I said, we are now in the beginning of Cheshvan, which is the month that follows Tishrei. Tishrei is that rich month of holidays, filled with holidays, not just one, many holidays, as we discussed at length last week. But Cheshvan is the stark, is the diametric opposite, the stark contrast. By stark contrast, has no Yom Teva. And yet, it, it's basking in the glow of Tishrei. The way that Rebbe puts it regarding Zion Cheshvan being that today is seventh of Cheshvan, is it's brought in Gemara and the Shulchan Aruch that you don't begin asking, even though we prayed for Geshem for rain, the beginning of this rain season in Israel, on Shmini Atzeres, but they don't begin asking, actually praying for rain until the, after, after, after the seventh of Cheshvan. Why? Because in the time of the Regal, which means when the Jews would go the three pilgrimages, Ali the Regal, Sholosh Regalim, Sukkis, Pesach, and Shavuos, I began with Sukkot because we're talking about Sukkot now, coming from Sukkot, so that as they would return back to their homes, and especially we're talking about in the time when many Jews still lived in Babylon and Bovel, so 7th of Cheshvim was the day when the last Jew would arrive at Nahar Pros. Nahar Pros is the Euphrates River in what is today modern-day uh, Iraq, which was Babylon of old, that that's where they would return. And because... We did not want to cause any discomfort or difficulty for them as they traveled back home from Eretz Yisrael, from the Ali Regal, where they went to Yerushalayim, according to the mitzvah, to make their pilgrimage. And we wanted them to have as much as peace as possible, a peaceful journey. We don't pray for rain in order not to cause any annoyance to the Jews who were traveling back home. Zayin Cheshvan was when the last Jews arrived back to their homes. And therefore, till this day, as a zecher to that, even though the Reda's al-Noal in a technical sense, but spiritually Zayin Cheshvan continues to carry that power. There are many lessons in that alone. First of all, the lesson is the, the major the Avis Yisrael, that even though rain is a blessing and we pray for rain because it's the basis of our sustenance, but if it's going to cause one person some discomfort, some difficulty in traveling home, we wait. The second thing is that we learn from it that the seventh of Cheshvan still is carrying the energy, like he says there in Shulchan Aruch, the Alter Rebbe brings it as well, that till seventh Cheshvan they still felt the aura, the spirit of Tishrei, of the Yom Tif. 
So it was technically, yes, they got back home then. But it meant they were still on that journey, that aliyah that came in Tishrei, and they were carrying it back home. So Zayat Cheshven, the Rebbe marks as yet another watershed moment in the year where we move from the Giluim, the revelations of Tishrei, and bring it back into our daily mundane lives of the regular routine of the year. And therefore Zayin Cheshven plays also another stage in Vayakov Holoch Ladarke, Jacob going back on his way, which means us returning from the high spiritual state in the, revelator, in the revelations of Tishrei into bringing it back and integrating and internalizing it into our personal lives, which of course is the ultimate purpose. Because as much as inspiration is powerful, as much as revelation is powerful, comes down to can you live by it, maintain it, and internalize it, and sustain that inspiration. It's one thing to be inspired, to be lifted on to great heights. It's another to bring it back into our regular lives and make our regular lives beyond regular, make the ordinary extraordinary. So Zayin Cheshven is marks that, that boundary, crossing the Euphrates River and bringing the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, the holiness of the Holy Land, and that means the holiness of godliness, the promised land, not just in the physical sense, but the spirituality, and make and to transform wherever we may live today, whether it's going to the, over the Euphrates, physically back to Iraq, which today Jews are not there anymore, or in a figurative sense, wherever we go back into our lives to bring that power and that potency into our daily lives, which of course is always important, and especially now when we are dealing with the different challenges that each of us faces. So we are not left alone. We are given resources, very powerful resources. So Tishrei technically is over, but its power continues to permeate our lives, and it's up to us to make sure to maintain, sustain, and transform our material lives into a spiritual oasis, which which is the theme, the central theme of Zayin Cheshvan. It's also Pasha Lech Lecha, and Lech Lecha doesn't need much effort to see the, the very meaning, the very translation of the word Lech Lecha is a journey. It's the first command to the first Jew of Ramavinu, Lech Lecha Ma'atzecha Ma'malatatcha Ma'beisavicha. So in the context of a journey, the travel from Tishrei to Cheshvan, from the holy to the mundane, from a spiritual lofty place to the tachtenim, make adire betachtenim, that's lech lecha. Lech lecha ma'atzucham malatcham abeis As explained in Chassidus, that lech lecha is true, that in the case of Avramovinu, he traveled from Urkazdim, from his homeland, to Eretz Yisrael. But the truth is lech lecha is both mamatav lamayla and mamayla lamata, Chassidus explains. It's a journey. The journey going from the bottom up, in this case, going from, he lived actually also in Iraq, in southeastern Iraq approximately, and his journey was toward Eretz Yisrael. But Lech Lecha also includes the journey going from Eretz Yisrael back home, in the sense what we discussed about going from Tishrei into Cheshvan. So Lech Lecha signifies in general every, every journey. The truth is, if you go deeper, Chassidus points out, and this is a, a tremendous lesson in life, that Lech Lecha is such a central component in our lives. The Arizal says, in Kisve Arizal, it's written, Chassidus cites it, the Rebbe brings it quite often, 
that the yichud of matan teira, meaning the unification, the connection, the fusion of heaven and earth that happened at matan teira at Sinai, which would still be seven generations after Avram Avinu, began with Avram, and specifically with Lech Lecha. Avram was already 75 years old, so he had gone on his journey, and he had discovered God, and he was already spreading godliness and divine unity everywhere he could reach, and everyone he could reach. But Lech Lecha signified a particular new, new stage in his life, because now he was actually leaving where he had grown up. He had done his work there, now he was going to Eretz Yisrael. So it was a major shift. There are many ways this is explained in Kabbalah and Chassidus, but let me just describe it in the more psychological Chassidus approach to it. That Lech Lecha, being that this is the first thing we really, even though we learned about Avram in the last, end of last week's chapter, Noyach, uh, that we read yesterday, but that was just his birth and just a few verses. Now we begin this true story of Avram Avinu. So it's interesting. Of all things, the Torah begins with Lech Lecha. Why Lech Lecha? Lech Lecha seems to be a means to an end. It's his journey. If the Torah had begun, okay, he took a journey and went to Eretz Yisrael, and the rest of it is all about Eretz Yisrael. But the mere fact that Lech Lecha plays such a prominent role means it's not just a means to an end. There's something about Lech Lecha itself. So explains Chassidus, based on another question. What does this mean in the verse when it says, from your land, from your birthplace, and from your home of your parents, of, the, of your parent, of your father? It seems to be redundant. In the case of Avramovin, all three were the same. His land, his birthplace, and the land of his father were all the same place, from Choron, where, where he lived. So what does it mean why does the Torah have to specify all three? And when it comes to the destination, it only says, to the land that I will show you. It seems counterintuitive. When you give someone directions to travel, they know where they are. You have to tell them where the destination is. What country, what state, what city, what street. Do you go east, west, north, south? And here the Torah seems to turn it around. The Abish is telling him, where to go is a vague, the land I will show you. When you travel, I will already show you where to go. When it comes to, this, to the, 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 the point of departure, three details. Answers Chassidus, that this carries the theme of what Lech Lecha really is. It's a universal and timeless call to each Jew, to each human being, that for you to grow and to achieve your ultimate potential, to become not the Areka goes only on the land, the land that I will show you. The land where I will show you who you really are, Areka. In this place, you will discover Areka, your true you. To be able to get to that type of place, you need to leave behind and free yourself from three types of subjectivity. One is Artsacha, one is Malatcha, one is Besavicha. What are the three forms of subjectivity that can blind us or block us from our journey? One is personal bias. We all have our blind spots due to our own subjective interests and prejudices and needs and so on, and biases. Number two is the influence of our parents, the attitudes, even beautiful parents. 
you're still under their influence. Children are many times behave in ways they're picked up and they in their impressionable years from their parents. And number three is our society, social pressure, social influences. So maladcha is your birthplace, your natural biases. Besavicha is parental influences, and Atzacha is the society around you. Very often, if someone were to ask you, are you who you are? Is this the true you? Or are you still pleasing? Or just extending what was expected of you by those three different forces? So to really discover your independent self, the true soul, Yes, all those forces, especially when they're healthy and beautiful, have great influence on us. And in their time, that's what's needed. But there comes a point where everyone needs to have a lech lecha in their lives. Where they go down their shlichus, just like a neshama, leaves its comfort zones up in heaven to come to this world. It's comfortable, that's, but, but it's comfortable. And that's its routines and patterns. It's gedusha, it's teva of gedusha, but it's still its nature. It comes into this hostile world and suddenly it's away from its natural habitat. And that's where you discover what the neshama really is when it's challenged in this world. And the same thing in our lives, number of times in our lives, whether the first time we go to school, first time we go to summer camp, first time we, we get married. When I say first, I mean the first time when we leave our homes permanently after we get married and build our homes and families. So all of it is, is, uh, includes challenges. But it's a lech lecha, that allows you to free yourself from past influences, even good ones, to reach greater heights, discovering your ultimate potential. As long as you're still a child of your parents and you're still basking in their protection, you always have the love from them and you always love them. But there's a point where you need to cut the umbilical cord, metaphorically as well, to discover yourself. With the strength of our parents and our education and our past, we can reach heights beyond what we would ever be able to reach as long as we're still affected by those around us. And this, of course, is true when you're dealing with negative influences. In the case of Avramovina, he was also leaving a place that happened to be a place of paganism. Though Avram had done much uh, effort to help change that, but still, it was a place like that. But Lech Lecha is regardless whether you're leaving a, the regilus of Gdusha, regilus meaning your ordinary, your patterns, and reaching a place beyond your natural place, or its negative things, lech lecha is a necessity to become great, to achieve greatness. Like the, the Pasha continues of how Abishta makes and promises Avram that he'll become a great, name will be great, the nation will be great. So lech lecha is a prerequisite in all forms of growth. And that's its lesson for us. Okay. So whenever we are challenged and our comfort zones are shaken up, think of it as an opportunity to achieve a higher state of lech lecha. And of course, this continues on and on in our lives because whatever you have achieved yesterday, tomorrow, there are new horizons to conquer, new possibilities, new opportunities. And this becomes the introduction to Matan Teda because that was Matan Teda. Matan Teda was total transformation. Without a lech lecha, Avram would still be and each of us would still be in a state where we're still impacted by the past. And to free ourselves from that subjective, those subjective uh, forces is a prerequisite to reaching Matan Teda. As the Yichud of Matan Teda begins with Avram Avinu.
In episodes 40, 86, 136, 185, 231, and 281, previous years, I discussed this as well. I always like to be thorough and complete, so this is a, think of it as a cross-reference to previous episodes that cover different subjects around Lech Lecha, Zayin Cheshven, this period of time of the year. With that, let us go to some questions here. What is your take on the US, upcoming U.S. elections and latest peace agreements in the Middle East? So, of course, in addition to COVID-19 and all the upheavals that's causing, in addition to the civil unrest, there's, of course, the events, the elections that are coming up, as well as events happening in the Middle East. The different peace accords, first with the UAE, and then with Bahrain, and now with uh, Sudan. So I did discuss this in previous episodes, but briefly, my take on it is similar to what I discussed last week, which we'll do some follow-up soon about as well. If ever there was a reminder that we need to learn to transcend the hu-ha, sometimes the nonsense of this world, now's the time when you see so much of disinformation, misinformation, disinformation, the confusion, the arguments, the pettiness, the raw, war, the war, the raw fight for power, how people will completely um, character assassinate others irrationally, what better way of reminding us that that the only one that can be free is one that embraces Teirah, that Isaac immerses themselves in Teirah. Why? Because Teirah gives us a taste of a higher reality, of what God wants from us. To get caught up in this, uh, in this whirlpool, it, besides the fact that it's confusion, besides the fact that it's draining and upsetting and frustrating, it's important to be able to have ability to also experience things that are something higher, an inch higher than the realities on the ground. It's, it's actually quite, uh, it, it, you feel like polluted sometimes when you hear the different arguments and so on. So my first, that's my first reaction to the whole thing. Now, of course, Lev Lachim V'sarim B'yad Hashem. The heart of kings and leaders is in the hands of God. On Rosh Hashanah, we said that Rosh Hashanah is designated the destiny of nations that will happen this coming year. That's why the Alter Rebbe made such an effort on Rosh Hashanah by the blowing of Shefer that Alexander of Russia should win the war over Napoleon of France. So that these things are determined from above. We have to do everything possible based on our understanding of Torah and its values to vote, the Rebbe voted, it's a responsibility, to vote for the individuals or the parties that represent, closest represent, none of them are perfect, none of them are divine, but the closest represent what the, the values are. By the Rebbe, the most important thing of all when it came to elections was not even the support of Israel by the presidents, even though that would seem intuitively the knee-jerk first litmus test of a good president. It wasn't that because the Rebbe felt Israel destiny was controlled by Israel, not by America. America would support whatever Israel would do. Obviously, it's also a factor when you have a president that supports. But that was not the main primary thing. The primary thing is does the president support the values of Tehran? Because remember, he's the president of the United States. And what he has to represent is the values that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution guarantee, which is based on 
in many ways, principles, Torah principles. And that is, in God we trust that there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears, accountability to a higher force, a higher power, inalienable rights that all of us share, created in the divine image. This was what the Rebbe felt. And the president supported that. That was the main role of government, was to make sure that its citizens live up to the highest possible standards. Not everyone just does what they want. Yes, it's true in a democracy, people can do what they want. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is that they should have an accountability to something higher and greater. It was always the bedrock and the foundation of this country. In God we trust, e pluribus unum, meaning from many, one, finding harmony within diversity, and essentially instilling into this country, into people, an education, not just knowledge and data and making money, but an, an awareness of a higher presence and a higher destiny. Now, I'm not going to t- tell anyone who to vote, who not to vote for. Can you find that in the candidates? Some may say both candidates don't really fully represent that. That's where we have to make our own judgments based on your own understanding of things, talking to Mashpia, and so on. But but that's my overall reaction to these elections. So we have to do our duty, but we cannot become consumed by it. Because whoever wins the election, we remain a a people connected to God, connected to the principles we were taught. Nothing is being destroyed because of an election. So we have to always remember that we went through history, we've gone through all kinds of leaders, good ones, terrible ones. People were the biggest anti-Semites, and Jew baiters and, and, and killers and so on. So thank God we're not living in a world like that. We have to remember that we have a Torah, we have a God. That's what drives us. And especially when you learn Chassidus. Remember that Elokus is the only thing that's MS at the end of the day. Godliness. And to try to instill in ourselves that attitude, that Elokus B'Pshittis. That Godliness is the reality and the rest of the world is secondary. It's created by God in order to transform it into a divine home. And never lose sight of that. That's the single most important thing that we have to always remember. As far as the peace agreements, I discussed this. Um, as long as Israel and has peace through strength and peace for peace instead of peace for land, absolutely. Shalom is the greatest aspiration that we always seek. The whole Torah was given to bring Shalom to this world. The position that the Rebbe so insisted on was not, not God forbid, against peace. It was against a false peace, based on false realities. Peace for peace. An acceptance of Israel, acceptance of the Jewish people there, and a peaceful coexistence. And when you come from strength, then you have true peace for all sides. It wasn't just good for Israel, it was good for the other side as well. So that's the general attitude to this and to any form. And halavai, that all the Arab countries in the Middle East come make a peace with Israel, with Israel, there's no question in my mind that is a positive, especially when they come out clearly against terrorism, against any type of anti-Israel aggression. That's a great blessing. And Israel remains intact without any ex- expectation of giving up half of their land or quarter or any part, even one inch of the land. Absolutely. And that's the way peace should be, true peace out of strength. Okay. With that, let us continue the discussion. I can't tell you how many comments and questions keep coming in about the discussion I had last week about COVID, 
what should what who should we follow? What are the medical guidelines? Who can you trust? Who can you not trust? What's the Torah view on all of this? So I really began discussing it in episode three hundred, which is around Purim time. But last week I discussed at length. I'm not going to go over what I discussed last week. That you can just look up in episode three twenty seven in the archives in atchesedesupply.com. But I'm going to follow up with some questions that came in. And then uh, and respond to that, and then continue on. Okay. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Regarding tonight's topic, which means this topic of COVID, which I discussed actually last week, on what to believe about government regulations and our behavior regarding COVID, surely you know of the frightening WhatsApp messages that are being circulated. Namely, these state that people should not allow government testing because ultimately the government testing is aimed at forcibly at forcibly taking COVID-positive family members away from their homes and putting them in COVID residences. People are also spreading messages that the government is testing our DNA and holding on to this information for nefarious purposes. These are just two messages I've seen, and these are spreading fear in people. Some friends have protested against these messages, saying it's all a violation of our constitutional rights. My own father, Oliver Shalom, was a physician and worked for the government, and I was taught to be trusting. Am I off base? Thank you. Yes, I've seen some of these, and I alluded to it last week, but let me be very blunt and straightforward. Unfortunately, we live in a world, and I'm not sure why, people tend to gravitate to extremes, extreme conspiracy theories, or the other extreme, just following whatever the government says is absolutely uh, right. I think we have to be intelligent people here, sober, um, deliberate, consider everything and take everything into account. Is it possible that all the doctors in the world and all doctors in the United States and the government are all conspiring to round up people and to put them into concentration camps? I would not say it's it's in the realm of a realistic uh, situation. Are there some that may think that way? Perhaps, but I don't think that they're in control. Whenever you hear any type of extremes like this, immediately, I just tell you my attitude is, it's, 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 it's not believable. Should everybody be tested and, uh, and so on? It's a medical question. It's a question that we have to ask a rabbi or ask a rav, ask a doctor. And I, for example, believe I had the symptoms. I was tested and I have antibodies. What exactly was wrong with doing that? As a matter of fact, there was a certain peace of mind. Was it mandatory? I didn't have to do it, but I wanted to do it. So I'm not really sure why this hysteria is taking hold. I think I understand why it is, because there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of confusion. There are a lot of agendas. And especially when you get to, for example, the area of pharmaceuticals, we all are skeptical how much money is being made, even with vaccines. But generally speaking, to live our lives of seeing things in black and white, it's either all terrible or all excellent, I don't think is an intelligent approach. I think we have to be wise and responsible for ourselves and our families and take everything into account. So no, I do not believe or agree that this is some type of gathering of DNA so that they can round everybody up. I don't believe that. If someone feels a suspicion of that nature, okay, so, so act on it. But to create a whole hysteria on WhatsApp is WhatsApp the place where we're going to, uh, 
we're going to create a consensus about this, an intelligent consensus. It's a place where you get many rumors, some of them substantiated, some not substantiated. And then there's today everybody has a platform without any filters to say anything they like. I could post right now something on WhatsApp. My own theory. Is it based on something? So I think we have to always take a little of a thing with a grain of salt, some discretion. And case by case, look at the situation. That's my response. Should everything be trusted, everything a doctor says or what doctors are saying? Also not. That's why I mentioned we have a tater. The tater says you go to the doctor you trust. If for whatever reason you suddenly lost trust in your doctor, okay, so go to a second doctor and then go follow two out of three. But we are not going to become doctors overnight. That's not our role. It's not our responsibility. And it's not even responsible behavior. So that's my general answer to this. So... I hear the, the concerns, but I think fear-mongering and panic of all levels is not appropriate. Then you find out that maybe some political forces are trying to incite because there's an election coming up. And the more panic, the easier way to win the election because you could say the current president is causing all these problems. And then you find out that some of this is being fed from that direction. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just pointing out that there are many scenarios. If you're a little intelligent, you can look at many ways you can explain many rumors that are out there. And some people maybe are interested in creating confusion. So then you find out that too has been planted. And I also believe that, again, that there's a gray area. I don't think anything is black and white, especially when you see after seven months that nobody really has a clue what's going on. Lockdown, how much lockdown? Then you have people who come out and say lockdown is actually not appropriate. Masks are not. I mean, so you have to find some balanced way or else we can just go nuts from all these different messages and, and they can't all be right. So the answer is maybe everyone has a little truth and try to be intelligent and figure out what's good for you and your family. And we have a tater, thank God. I and mean, that's what we need to follow. A rov, doctors. Now, if you don't respect your rov, find another rov. There's, there, there are enough good, intelligent people out there, especially trained that can help us out in this situation. Next question. Is someone who wears masks, believes in distancing, gets vaccines, is that someone lacking in betochen? Betochen meaning trust in God. Well, without getting now into the discussion whether masks and distancings and vaccines are the right thing to do, and let's assume, yes, they are, and medical authorities are saying that, the same question can be asked about anything. If you take an aspirin or an Advil, or you go to a doctor because you have a cough, or God forbid anything else, is that lacking betachen? No, that is betachen. God said, I created a world, I created laws of nature, and I gave I gave permission for a healer to heal, for a doctor to heal. And that's part of my system, God's system. That's part of what Teda mandates. And therefore, when you follow what a doctor says, you follow those guidelines, then it is part of betachen. Betachen doesn't mean defying everything and just saying, I'm not going to do anything about my health, God will help me. That's actually hepach of betachen. That's shtus. So part of this is, yes, to be careful about your health includes following doctors and so on. Which doctors we already discussed? That you need to find. Your trusting doctor, find a few opinions to determine. But no, absolutely not. If it's a guideline, a medical guideline, it's, it's, it, that's what defines betachen, trust in God. Now, trust includes that even when you do all these things and it doesn't work out, God forbid, or, or 
there are other things. You know that you're doing it because it's trust in God, not because masks have a power. Just like you know, medicine doesn't have a power. The power it has is because God gave it that power. Okay, next question. Go to your primary care provider, PCP, Rafia did. Lessons we can learn from this situation. So this is the title of the, this person's comment. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, one of the tragic things we've seen in this pandemic is that we've, we've seen medicine politicized. Yes, indeed. That's my uh, footnote. As such, there's no consensus on the science. As we know, science is a process of discovery of our physical world. Generally, a hypothesis Generally, a hypothesis is declared, and then through the process of scientific uh, inquiry, scientists discover whether, whether the hypothesis is true. When people use the term the science, they mean to say that there's a general consensus among the vast majority of scientists. As you eloquently pointed out in episode 327, that's last week, there is no consensus, and we have demonst- dem- 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 demonstrably seen the politicization of medicine. We've seen doctors fall in line with the politics of the day and the politicians they agree with. It doesn't help stop following politics. It doesn't help to stop following politics because ignorance isn't bliss. We have already seen this for decades in the scientific world with such dogma as evolution and climate change. All dissenters are deemed crazy and ostracized. The few who can withstand the brutal attack from the PC, politically correct scientists, are marginalized and poo-pooed. One of the things I think we can learn from the pandemic is to ensure that we don't deify science and scientists. Scientists, scientists are human, fallible and politicized. They are also motivated by all the human vices everyone else's, including greed, the need to be included, and other vices. When scientists stand up and say something that contradicts what we have learned in Torah, we should be very wary of taking the scientists' opinion as fact and then try to fit the Torah to match their view. Okay, thank you for that comment, and I will even add to it. Yes, unfortunately, a lot has been politicized. I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal today. Tomorrow's Wall Street Journal, today's Wall Street Journal, sorry. That talks about exactly that, how politics is affecting medicine and science, which is unheard of, especially when you're dealing with life-threatening situations. And they gave an example. They gave an example that there, there were, I think, I don't know, uh, hundreds, if not, it were a thousand scientists and doctors who came out and said that the protests over Black Lives Matter is all right from a point of view of health. And the same ones criticized people going to other group, other group settings, synagogues, churches, other places, the same people. That's pure politics. Because if group settings are not appropriate, they're not appropriate no matter what. Unfortunately, a lot has been politicized, and that's a blatant one. There's so many that are not blatant. So I'm not suggesting we have to take the law in our own hands or take medicine in our own hands. You have to just take everything with a grain of salt, as I mentioned, and understand this balance, and that's why we have to find an Hashem for sure sent us ability to find the right practitioners and the right authorities, including rabbinic authorities, that can help us try to seek some clarity through this whole... Uh, the fog of uh, misinformation and politics. Okay, next question. All on this topic. Thank you for your forum that addresses people's concerns. 
Following your last video, in which you basically say that people should follow the doctor which they always trusted, or at least ask three and follow the majority, based on what the Rebbe said, this is how most of us were educated. But a few weeks ago into this virus, but a, I'm sorry, but a few weeks into this virus, that notion was shaken by me quite a bit. Once I found that a life-saving remedy had indeed been discovered, yet the vast majority of from doctors, religious doctors, refused to acknowledge it as a remedy that should be taken, I have had a communication with them as to why, and I've come to the realization that because doctors study for many years and then practice under certain institutions, FDA, CDC, they build a trust with them to the point that it is very difficult for them to notice corruption, which in this case has clearly been demonstrated in many ways. Number one, that doctors got a load of money for every COVID death. Do you think that after noticing that one must still listen, after noticing that, does one must still listen to the doctor or those doctors? Regarding Rabbanim, many are very busy and don't have the time or think it's a waste of time to even begin getting into such a discussion and would only want to take advice from those in the medical field about whom I wrote before. Okay, a fair question. But let's look at the alternatives. Let's say you're correct that there was some discovery made and doctors that you always trusted are not accepting that. So what, are you going to become a doctor yourself? And how do you know? Maybe some discovery was made, but maybe it wasn't tested properly. Maybe it's working for some people, maybe not for others. I mean, this is a medical question. So it's really a question of the Torah. What is the Torah saying when the permission was given to the doctor to heal? And you find out your doctor, forget about COVID. Let's talk about anything. The doctor is dealing with asthma or diabetes in a way and is ignoring a certain new possible remedy that another doctor found somewhere in the world. And you bring it up to your doctor, and the doctor says... It's, it's meaningless, or that's a waste of time. It's some quack doctor that's offering that. So you could either trust him or not trust him. How do you know which doctor to trust? That's why the day of the Arefi did is so important, the Yedid part. Someone you can trust, and you've trusted for years in your life, is the key here. If you can't trust your doctor, you say you lost trust because of this suggestion, maybe your doctor is right and that doctor is wrong, or maybe it hasn't been tested enough. And we know this is not in black and white because those suggested remedies did work for some. For some, it didn't. For some, it didn't help at all. People died even with those remedies. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't look at it. That is why we have to take some consensus. If you really feel strongly that you heard about some remedy, remember, you're not a doctor. How do you know that that doctor is more correct than, than yours? Is it possible, on the other hand, that your doctor is part of the corrupt? Of course it's possible. That's why go to a second doctor. And then try to do two out of three. That's what I would say. And if the consensus is that remedy shouldn't be used, that's the consensus. That's what Taylor is saying. You're going to run around to find, exactly find the doctors that agree with your approach or agree with that other doctor's approach. So again, is it black and white? We only can go with our intelligence and go with what the Taylor says. That's my response. Okay. Now, completely changing subjects even though there's more on this, but let's leave it for coming weeks. So there's a topic that, unfortunately, plaguing us, perhaps as strong as COVID itself, even though COVID is much more predominant, dominant right now, rather, and, uh, and a new, now, the, the new, the new challenge on the block, so to speak. But there's one that's plaguing that's actually, in many ways, has become amplified now, and that is online addiction. So I've been addressing it um, in the episodes 
really began episode 320 and then 324 through 326. I've spoken about this over the years. I'll just give you the episodes as well. 34, 132, 209, 256, 258, and 260. Just to show you how important of an issue it is, questions, I keep getting questions on this topic all the time, and the, the reason is very direct and very simple. Sadly, it's a real challenge, facing many more people than we'd like to believe. So I feel, based on just seeing the, the, the flow of questions coming in on this topic, and, uh, and, and I could say it's quite extensive, that it's worthwhile continuing to discuss, even though I've talked about it from different angles. And I want to also conclude some things I didn't finish, people had written to me. So we're going to break this into two parts. We began discussing primarily online addiction in general, but specifically online addiction, a spouse who's addicted to online inappropriate uh, materials. And then go back to online addiction directly for the individual themselves. Of course, there's overlap, they connect with each other. But since the spousal issue is one that is uh, one that I didn't address till recently, let me continue with that, and then we'll move to the online addiction in general. As always, I must share with you, it's not something I want to speak about. I'm not looking for this to speak about. It's definitely not in any form of uh, sensationalism, God forbid. It's just a real issue. And my pledge and the commitment of Chassidus Applied, my life Chassidus Applied, is to address real-life issues and not, to sh- and not to shy away from anything that's uncomfortable or sensitive, just to speak about it in a dignified way, in a modest way, in a tznizdik way. But the goal here, of course, is only one thing and one thing only, to help individuals deal with this big Nusayin, this, this big test and challenge, and using Torah and Chassidus in the process. And of course, any other resources we can make ourselves available of that can help us, in, including support groups and support systems that are out there. In our day and age, due to the online access, this has exploded into a major problem. It's a way that people initially seems almost like a, an innocent type of addiction, not like drugs and alcohol that you see little physical impact. But in many ways, this can be even more insidious and even more damaging to the human spirit and psyche because it touches sexuality, it touches intimacy, relationships, trust, love. And of course, the the addiction of it is escaping and numbing oneself through quick fix, through instant gratification. And this is why it's such a dominant issue, especially when people are more isolated, more challenged. This is one of the go-to easy drugs that people turn to. So I'm going to continue with the issue with, the, as I said, spouse, a spouse addicted. And I refer again to the episodes 320, 324 through, through 326, where I've already addressed it. Just see this as a follow-up continuing from there. I'm going to try not to repeat what was said there. And I rely that if you're really interested, and I definitely encourage you to go back to those episodes. They're easy to find. Go to chassidahsupply.com. There are timestamps that lead you straight to each of these sections and uh, that you don't have to listen to the whole program, just to these parts that are relevant to what you're interested in. So, so I'm going to go back to, uh, to, to some of the questions that continue to come in on this. Rabbi Jacobson, I, a while back I submitted a question about my husband's usage of inappropriate online content and what to do moving forward. That was quite lengthy. 
And I found a way to word my question more concisely. Well, part of my question, at least. The lengthy version has more that, has more that I ask, but there, here is a follow-up to my question. I actually read the longer question, and I addressed it. But since there was a follow-up, let me just sum it up. Though we are undoubtedly in a better place, me and my spouse, and my husband isn't currently watching the, these inappropriate things that I'm aware of, at least that I'm aware of, we haven't really worked through anything that, that's been, that has happened. All the hurt and pain, we haven't sp- spoken much about it with each other. We've simply moved on, and we certainly have a better relationship, from, but from time to time, the under... The undealt with hurt will crop back up and pull us back down. So even though we are for the most part in a better place, do you think we should face everything that's happened and navigate our way through all that darkness to emerge on the other side or just focus on moving on and being better and invest in the now? Without having gotten help, how can we be sure it won't happen again? What would you advise as the best plan of action moving forward with the best chances of this not happening ever again? Did the Rebbe ever speak to anyone about their spouse dealing with this issue that we know about? What is my role as a spouse? Thank you again for your time and effort. Okay. So briefly, which I did discuss, but I'll just say briefly because this is important questions. Look, I always, we go, call Yisrael becheskes kashus. Everyone is considered to be truthful and honest. But once someone does fall in this regard, it's very important there be accountability. I am not going to suggest that your spouse has regressed. If he's saying clearly that he's left it behind, we have to trust it. But do you have a guarantee? Absolutely no. And why would he not return to it again? It is just his promise to you. So I could see these doubts lingering, which is why I would suggest, suggestion, that being that this is still in the background, Though I would not adamantly and very strongly say, unequivocally, do not go back and dig up all the garbage and and work it all through. That's not what you should be doing with your husband. It will usually cause more pain and problems. But I think I would insist on having a mashpia, a third party, where you and him can discuss it with, and he can discuss with that person privately and individually. Because there may be things he doesn't want to say in front of you as a spouse. But I definitely would insist on that because without that accountability, unfortunately, it's very easy for it to go back to where it was. I don't say that easily or lightly. It's just a reality. So to real, that's what I would suggest. So I would not suggest going into an intense review of the past. I would focus, as you said, on the present and on the future, on building the relationship. But because this is still haunting, I, would just not, I wouldn't rely on that alone. Now, if your husband insists and says everything is fine and so on, what's there to lose, I would say? So of course, let's speak to Mashpi anyway. He may be embarrassed, but the fact of the matter, this did happen. So I wouldn't get into a fight over it, but that's the way I would encourage it. And I think I spoke about as a role of a spouse is two things. You don't want to become a policeman of your husband. You don't want to become a detective or investigator. You want there to be trust, and he has to also feel that way. On the other hand, you want to be a loving partner that includes not being in denial and not avoiding the issues. Which means in some kind, generous, compassionate way to help him get to a better place. 
Now, when it does, I wouldn't bring it up just out of the blue, but when it does crop up for whatever reason, I'm not sure why it does, but if it does, I would definitely say, you know, look, I love you deeply. I want to build our family well. This thing is still like a stain or a pollu- polluted, a, an element of polluted element in our lives. And I just want to do everything possible, just like if we had a child who was, God forbid, having a challenge. You don't just hope for the best. You go to a doctor, you ensure that everything is fine. So I just want us both to feel that way. If he gets very defensive and is unable to do that, to me that's not such a great sign because why is he getting defensive if you're being that compassionate? You know, if he's truly sincere about that, then he would agree. But again, I, would not be, I wouldn't fight about it. Use your intelligence, your intuition. Talk to perhaps a friend or others you don't have to say exactly who it is. It doesn't have to be, say, exposed to your husband. But just say, how would you deal with a situation like this? That itself may be, obviously people will understand probably who you're talking about. But if you have someone you can trust to speak about it with, I would definitely advise that as well to get more objective advice. Being I also don't know who the people are, yourself and your spouse, whoever it is that's listening to this, there are dynamics in each case that are different one from the other. That is why, again, it's impossible to give a f- complete advice here on a, online in a program like this without some personalized understanding of the customiz- custom- customized situation that you are in particular. But above all, remember, everything can be dealt with. When there's honesty, accountability, transparency, when you have that, that's the key to a relationship. It's not about perfection. If your spouse, God forbid, will slip again, but there's accountability, you have the ingredients of a healthy relationship. If there's no accountability, that's where the problems begin. So it's not just whether you make a mistake or not. It's whether you're ready to address it. And that's what you should be looking toward. Okay. <clears throat> now, the next, another, another uh, let's see here. Just let me see, make sure I'm covering everything. Now, people have asked about support groups, which I will be reading in a moment. So I just want to mention that follow-up about the adult education. Here's a, here are two resources for those struggling with this addiction or this nisayan. One is sanon.org, S-A-N-O-N.org, a website. Another is guardyoureyes.com. I received this from listeners, actually, as excellent resources for people who have been struggling and dealing with this issue. So that is, uh, okay. Now. So the next comment on this issue here, hi Rabbi J. In the past few episodes, You've been addressing a woman whose husband is suffering from an online addiction. If I may, and I apologize if this is a bit long, I'd like to possibly give some personal experience and advice, as well as some perspective from the other side of the coin. I have debated for a while whether or not to write to you about this, but given the severity of the situation, I've decided to write. I am a man who has struggled with online addiction for close to 20 years. I've tried every type of therapy and therapist and nothing has worked for me. I've been married for close to 10 years and Baruch Hashem, 
We have a beautiful family. Recently, I opened, I, op- I opened up to my wife about what I was dealing with. It was extremely hard, and to say she was shocked is an understatement. The first few days were very hard, and I gave her all the credit in the world for the way she handled it. I give her all the credit in the world for the way she handled it. It was only with thorough communication that we got through this. And now we are closer than ever before. I've also been clean now for longer than I ever, ever, ever have been. To the wives listening to this, I'd like to offer the following advice. I had wanted to tell my wife about what I was dealing with for years, but I was absolutely terrified. I was certain that she was going to ask me for a get, a divorce, the second I told her. If you do think your husband is addicted, I think it's healthy to speak to him about it. But you must communicate that you still love him and understand that you are not judging him. Tell him that you still respect him and just want to get through this together. To the men that are unfortunately struggling with addiction, let me say, first, keep your head up. It is possible to overcome this. Try to speak to your wife about this. It was a massive relief to open up to her about it for me. I know, this, I know this can be terrifying. The main thing that hurt and upset my wife was not my addiction, but was the fact that I kept it a secret from her for so long. Speak to your wife and communicate that the addiction is not about her. Speak to your wife and communicate that the addiction is not about her. I can't promise that if you open up that your wife will handle it the same way that mine did, but I can't promise she won't. And I can't promise that she won't want to get all I can tell you is what worked for me. We should have a speedy end to Gullis and all of these problems. Okay, so that speaks for itself. I'm not going to comment on it. It's coming from the, the heart-wrenching, real-life experience of an individual, and I felt it's appropriate to share. This is just a taste of what comes my way and what I think is important to address because this, unfortunately, is an issue that, that uh, many are struggling with as we speak. Okay, there's more on this topic, but due to limited time, I'm going to stop here, and I will continue in the coming weeks, the coming programs. Let me go to the Chassidus question, and then to um, we're going to review some of the winning contest essays that came in this year. This this week we're going to deal with some of the Hebrew ones. Okay. One more comment I want to make about all of this. If you do have questions on the matter of online addiction, obviously please feel free to write at chassidusapply.com. At it's completely anonymous and confidential. I think if it's anonymous, it's definitely confidential. My anonymous means I and no one can access who wrote it because it's a forum and you can write it without any identification at all. If you do want to communicate with me and want me to con- be able to communicate, then of course leave a leave it, 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 you either leave your email address or other way to reach you, but don't sit quietly about this. It's well worth the effort, even though it can be terrifying. And often we like we say, let's just keep it undercover. It ultimately is something that's going to pop up, like this individual just wrote. So don't ignore it. As we go into a new year, we have new keiches, new faculties, new upper, new strengths, and uh, there are people that can be helpful. And please. Don't hesitate to reach out here, and we will help you in any way we can. Okay. The Chassidus question is, since it's the parasha of Lech Lecha, was Abraham the first Jew? 
How does Chassidus explain his status? Very good question. Because on one hand, we know that the Jewish people became a nation at Matan Torah, 26 generations after the creation of the world. That's why they had to go through a gear, a conversion, which was Kabbalah's mitzvahs, mikveh, bris, circumcision. Because before that, they were legally not Jewish. So what exactly is the status of a Jew in general in that context? So there's actually Svarim about this, first in Nigla, the Sefer called Prashas Drachim, sometimes called Derech Mitzvah not the Tzemach Tzadik, it's a Nigla Sefer that talks a lot about the status of the Ovis before Matan Teireh. So halachically speaking, for all practical, there was no such concept of Jew and non-Jew before Matan Teireh. So it's not the Pshat that they were, they were non-Jews in the way that we define a non-Jew after. There didn't exist that. Adam and Chava were created by God, and there was no distinction between Jew and non-Jew at that point. They had neshama, obviously, and that Izal says, Taka, they not eaten from the tree of knowledge, they would all have been just neshamas Yisrael, souls of Israel. But the technical term of being a Jew, legally a Jew, did not happen until Matan Teda. Goy of Goy, they were called nations, the nations of the world. Remember the word Goy, even though many people define it as Gentile, it really means nation, the nations of the world. So by Matan Teda, two things happened. The Jew was born, and the non-Jew was born, so to speak. In halachic terms, generally speaking, the people before Matan Teda, including the Ovis, technically were related more to a non-Jewish laws than to Jewish laws, because they didn't have yet, were given mitzvahs, mitzvah v'esah, the only mitzvah Avram was given was bris mila, the other mitzvahs he did on his own, volition. That's on a legal halachic perspective. But there's another thing about being Jewish, and that is the ideology of Judaism. Avram Avinu was the first to discover God through his own efforts. And Hashem Echad, a one God, monotheism, not just monotheism as one God, not many, but one reality, as Chassidus explains. And he committed his life to become completely dedicated by to go around and reveal and teach about God to everybody. So in that sense, first Jew would mean the first one that embraced the Jewish mandate. It would become formalized at Matan Teda. So Avram Avinu himself, he had lived during, before Matan Teda. He would also go through a gear. Not a gear because he wasn't yet embracing the ideology. A gear because halachically, the category of a Jew did not happen till Matan Teda. So everyone went through that even though they was the children of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So on one hand, to just use an example that Rambam and Pirish HaMishnayis brings in Chulun, that when we do a bris today, the mitzvah bris, we do a bris, he says, not because Avram Avinu was commanded, but we were commanded Amat and Teda. And yet we say by the bris, bris shal Avram Avinu. So which one is it? Explains the Rebbe, Chelik Yud, Lukut Esichas, Lech Lecha, volume 10, that both... Matan Teda gave it the Teda Dika mandate, the Teda Dika commandment of, of Bris. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the schus, the, the merit and the power of Avram Avinu in the Bris. So you could ask the question, why didn't, why didn't God create Jews right in the beginning of creation? It says, Bresh is Baralikim, Zashmayim Vesaritz, Bresh is Bishril Ateda, Bishril Yisrael, Bishril Ateda, Bezereshis. 
So why right now, right now have Jews right there, give Matan Taylor there, Jews and nations of the world? So one of the explanations, and you can look at this up in Shlach, Shabbos Pasha Shlach, Tov Shemem Zayin. It's printed in Sefer HaSichus, Tov Shemem Zayin. That one of the reasons is because the Abishta wanted that the world should prepare itself before he's going to give a Gilimul that you need to have a Kali for it. Example is Chinuch, education. Why, isn't, why aren't we born 20 years old? Or 13 years old, 12 and 13 years old? Because first we're born in this material world. And we're educated by our parents. They prepare us. It's thinking of it like training. Before you go into the military, you train. So before you become a formal soldier of gods, at Bas Mitzvah, 12 for a girl, and, and 13 for a boy, there's a training period. Mountain, before Mount Taylor was a collective, a macrocosmic training. And you needed to go through the generations, like we learned in Basiligani right in the beginning of the Maimon, from the Medr Shira Shirem Rabba. That first the Shekhinah was betachtenim, but through the Chet Tzadas, human error, human sin, it was concealed, a second level of concealment, third level. Avram reversed the process. So you have an effort coming from what's called Asrusa de Latata, an effort from below. So before Matan Teda was given, Matan Teda would have been given at the beginning of creation, it would have been a gift from above, and the people were not re- ready for it. As a matter of fact, so this explains that the first 26 generations, Nizunin the Gemara says in Psachim, they were sustained by God's kindness. That's why in the first, till the Mabul, they lived so long. It was a Gilimul Mail. But that's why they also fell, because it wasn't internalized. The internalization comes through the process, first of the fall, then of the rebuilding, of Ramavinu, rebuilding, preparing the ground, Yitzchak further, Yaakov, till the seventh generation, Moshe Rabbeinu, beginning with Matan Teireh, where now the, and the world has been refined enough to be able to receive that mandate. So basically, before Matan Teireh is a form of education of a I, want to call, I don't want to call it a non-Jewish world, but not a Jewish world either. You don't yet have that halachic status. You have a world of people trying to discover God. Avram didn't go through any gir, through any conversion. He went through a change of, of perspective, a, a fundamental change, a paradigm shift. And with that, he changed the whole world. And that prepared the ground that when Matan Teter would come, and then following that, with the koiches, because the Jews were trained by their parents. They were taught the message that the message of Zdoka Mishpat that Avram Avinu inculcated into his son and then Yitzchok into his son and then the Shvatim and so on so they, they didn't come not prepared by the time they come to Matan they were well educated in the doctrine and in the beliefs and the ideology of what Judaism would really present and Matan formalized it that's how we understand it. Sometimes when we speak about the difference between before Matan we speak about similar, that before Matan was more like Bnei Neach. What does Bnei Neach mean? The children of Neach. They had Sheva Mitzvahs. Avram was also from the children of Neach, from the Shem, from Bnei Shem. And then by Matan came a new category when Shomish Yisrael manifested in Gufim, Am Yisrael. In the birth of by that I chose you among the nations. That happened at Matan And that became formal. Now we have also the Koyach Melmaila, not just from below, 
to transform this world and bring Mashiach and Geula. But the key thing is also to remember that the spirit of these ideas is meant to be early goyim, a light onto nations, that all peoples of the world, all nations of the world should embrace it. That's why Avram, Av Hamoyin Goyim. Avram was not just the father of Yitzchak, he was also the father of Yishmol and the grandfather of Esav, who respectively would become the progenitors, they'd become the ancestors of the Muslim Arab world and the Christian Western Roman world. And by Matan Teir, actually, the Ebrister went and asked them, the Bnei Yishmol and Bnei Esau, would they receive the Teir? And the Zayir explains, because they were being prepared, that one day they would ultimately accept, Oz Epech Alam Safa Bruda, that all the nations would embrace the principles of Teir, each according to their way. The Jewish people through their Tayag Mitzvahs, the rest of the world through their universal laws, the laws of civilization that transform this world into a divine place, a habitable place, a civilized world. Okay. So before, before uh, Rosh Hashanah, we announced the winners. This year we had more tracks than always. We usually had only, we had a track called, uh, we had only th- one, three prizes. Our first prize winner, whether it was Hebrew or English essay, a second prize winner, a third prize winner. This year we added another four tracks. One was a creative track, Another was a completely separate Hebrew chapter, a Hebrew division of the essay contest. And there we had three winners and a student winner. So basically eight winners in the Hebrew, men and women separately. In, Amer- in English, it was both combined. So being that I already reviewed the first and second place winners of, both, of the essay, English essay contest and the creative, I'm going to review now briefly the the first two place winners in Hebrew, um, the both men and women, so four essays that uh, the winners were, which were announced again before the high holidays. Um, first we'll begin, first we'll begin with the women. So the first place women, the first place essay contest winner in Hebrew was a student, Dvaraleya Garelik, and she wrote about Seid Hatas Hateva. The secret of the, you can say, uh, a good mistake. Basically, a very thorough overview of the mistakes we make and how we address them through denial, through blaming others, through uh, other different methods that are used. And uh, applying chsidis, approach to a mistake and understanding, first of all, that we are all flawed in the first place and how we transform a mistake into something positive. It was the first prize in an excellent essay on this topic. It's in Hebrew. We may, in time, translate it into English. Now, you can see the Hebrew essays at a different site. ChassidahSupply.com is the English essays. And there's a, there's a special Hebrew site called diraloi.org. D-I-R-A-L-O.org is the site for um, the Hebrew essay contest. There you can see all these essays. Very good. She comes from Nahariya, Israel. The second prize winner in the Hebrew essay contest was uh, a student, Aleha Chadad, or Eliyahu. No, 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 it's a woman. Say Eliyahu, or Eliyahu. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Chadad, from Netanya, Israel, also a student, and she wrote about Vayimalu Yoma Betoda Shita Sachsidus, the Chassidic approach to gratitude. Gratitude is a very popular topic today. 
again, very thorough and a good overview comparing it to different approaches to what the power of gratitude is. Bikurim and other forms of gratitude that the Torah mandates and expects of us and how critical it is to the growth of a human being and the soul of a person. Another very well done essay was the second prize winner in the women's contest. In the, in, in the men's department, the Hebrew, the first prize winner was another student, Elozer Nachshon. Tfises Hazman v'kashoi amide bezmanim ba'afroas keshev v'dikus ADHD. Very powerful essay on ADHD, basically. The challenges of someone with ADHD about being on schedule, on time, being able to focus. Again, very thorough, covers it from many different angles. And uh, great contribution to this topic, not just for us listening here, but I believe for the entire world reading this essay. And the second prize winner in the men's department of the Hebrew essay contest is a student, Menachem Mendel Dekel, Hitcharust Tzmicha Otznicha. A discussion about competition, is it a positive thing that causes growth or is it a negative thing? Because sometimes we find competition could also be something negative. Well, well done. Hasidic approach to Kinesov from Tarbuchachma, how healthy competition actually makes things grow and how to minimize or completely eliminate the negative elements of competition. And there we have it. We will continue reviewing essays and the creative as we go along. With that, we conclude this week's episode of My Life, Because It Is Applied, episode 328. Everyone should have a very meaningful and healthy and, uh, and rich Megashmis and Baruchnis month of Cheshvan. May we transform this month into a month of Gu'ula. We are here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My Life, Because It Is Applied. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapply.com donate.